getting the speed right. Malcolm's my name. Welcome, particularly if you're visiting us this morning. We've been looking uh, at a series. Um, it's four weeks on when God's ways make no sense because sometimes they really don't. And not only can that be confusing, it can also make us do quite dangerous things as Christians. Um, we've looked at Jonah who um, resisted and ran from God. Uh, we had a look at Saul of Tarsus who uh, distorted and denied the gospel basically to fit in to his understanding of uh, the world as a very committed Jew. And uh, this week we're going to look at Habakkuk. And what I'd like you to do, can you have your Bible open at page 764? Have your Bible open because you're going to help me in a little while. Uh, you're going to help me. Page 764. So you can, if you don't want it open, you know, to follow the text, you can just put it down. That's fine. But we are going to need it open at 764. You might even like to close your eyes as you listen to me now and connect with what I'm sharing uh, there I am, uh, there I am in, in bed, and it's 3am, and I've woken with a start and a gasp. I'm sweating, cold, and it's right before my eyes, the scenarios and the questions and the dead ends are swirling around in my mind, and it's 3 a.m., I toss and I turn. Pray. Pray? I can't pray. What good does praying do anyway? I'm bouncing from scenario to scenario. I feel sick in the pit of my stomach because this needs something to happen. Something needs to change. I need action a breakthrough. I've been over it from every possible angle and all the doors seem locked. All the ways are blocked. It's all right for the vicar. He might stand up there and tell me that God is good. That's terrific. But I want to know, with Habakkuk, what good is God? I can resist and run, but where to? Or I can deny God's sovereignty over all things and I can come up with a new faith that I've invented that'll give me a better outcome because any outcome will do right now. Or is there some other way? Is there another possibility? But the thing is, I'm just so tired so alone, so gripped by turmoil, so desperate and so awake. And it's 3am in this bedroom filled with dragons and monsters. Habakkuk isn't the easiest prophet to understand right off the bat. He finds God totally unsettling. He doesn't get him. You get the biblical idea after three weeks of this? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the thing, isn't it? This is not uncommon. 
But we find that Habakkuk hangs in there and makes his feelings known. And then he asks questions because he he knows enough to know that God sees things differently to him. God sees things differently to him. Have you ever just sat still and quiet wherever you are, whatever's going on, whatever the situation is, and said to yourself, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God. My ways are not your ways, God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, God. My ways are not your ways, God. When God's ways deeply unsettle Habakkuk, he starts to go on a journey. Now, that first reading, which is a bit disturbing really and not particularly pleasant from Second Kings, introduces us to the time in which Habakkuk prophesied. It was the reign of Jehoiakim. There were a number of Jehoiakims. There were a number of Jehoiachins as well. And they were all bad news. But it's pretty tough, isn't it? 25 and you find yourself king of a country that's under siege. Habakkuk's, uh, sorry, uh, Jehoiakim's response to that um, was in the same time as Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was prophesying in this, this same time. It was Jehoiakim who sat on his royal throne with his courtiers and advisors around them and asked that a fire be brought in, one of those brassier, brassier things that light up and be brought in to warm him. And as Jeremiah's scroll was read, he instructed his courtiers to cut the bottom off it and each section he threw it into the fire. The word of God to Israel, he threw it into the fire to warm him in that moment. You see, Jeremiah, like Habakkuk, was bad news for Israel and Jehoiakim had no time for bad news. And you can understand it, can't can't you? Because it speaks of raiding parties. Moabites, Ammonites, Amorites, Chaldeans, they were the Babylonians. Coming and what these raiding parties would do was often not get inside the city, but they'd stand outside with a megaphone and they'd say, people of Jerusalem, don't listen to your king. We are just a visiting party, but tens of thousands are coming following us. And we are going to break down your walls and destroy you if you do not relent and let us in. Do not believe anything your king says, for we have come and you are ruined. We discovered in the text that Jehoiakim had actually done a deal a deal with those neighbouring nations and tribes and had paid a tribute for three years, but now he was sick of it. He was sick of being oppressed, crushed from within by the people of Jerusalem and threatened from without. It wouldn't have been an easy time to be a king. But scripture says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Habakkuk was wishing, living, uh, living, wishing that the violence and injustice and hypocrisy and immorality inside the walls of Jerusalem, it was falling apart, would stop 
And that's what he's crying out about. It grieved his heart and he wanted God to do something and to change something. So we discover a prophet in the first verses who's in confusion. His prophecy opens with foreboding that doom is at hand. So Habakkuk prays and waits, but nothing happens. Things get worse and he gets frustrated. So I'm reading from the message version. He cries out, God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? Are you deaf? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to rescue? God's do-nothing approach makes no sense to Habakkuk. Why doesn't God do something when his people are disgracing themselves in the city of Jerusalem, going to other gods, temple prostitutes, setting up effigies in the temple, all manner of disgusting and disgraceful things? But when, but when eventually God's, God responds, it only confuses Habakkuk more. More confusion. God says, look around at these godless nations. Look long and hard. Brace yourself for a shock. Something's about to take place and you, Habakkuk, are going to find it hard to believe or understand. The message is, Habakkuk, you reckon Israel's bad. They're nothing compared with Babylon. Babylon are awful, way more awful than you are in Jerusalem. Yet listen to this, Habakkuk. I am going to crush Israel's sin. Hate sin, and you are my people, and I am going to crush the sin that I find within you, and I'm going to use Babylon to do it. The less evil crushed by the more evil makes absolutely no sense, and it's deeply offensive. Have you ever thought how little sense uh, Jesus made? It was interesting sitting up there in Galilee. It was beautiful. Thinking to myself, why did you spend so much time up here? And it really dawning on me powerfully for the first time how offensive Jesus' teaching was. To people like Jehoiakim. Things like the first shall be last. How offensive. Unless you become as a little child, you'll never understand God. The greatest will be the least. Wash one another's feet. And in so doing, you do the will of God. Lay down your life 
for each other. If you want to win, lose. Blessed are those who mourn. If I don't leave, nothing will happen. But God was cracking open Habakkuk's soul by confusing him more and more and more. Yes, he could resist and run or he could distort and deny or he could stop and tremble, tremble, tremble. Habakkuk's like mine is a soul that said, this is the right way. A soul that said, I know best. A soul that said, God, what do you think you're doing? A soul willing to judge the judge. A soul that's yet to understand his need to tremble at God's ways if he's going to learn to trust in God's goodness. So like Jonah before him and Paul, a Saul, after him, an incongruous God is what Habakkuk confronts. So he calls out, you can't condone evil, so why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you just stand around and watch He could have resigned like Jonah or he could have gone blah, 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 blah and just made up a whole lot of theology that suited him and his situation and his pandering to self like Saul. But in amongst his but why questions, why, why, why questions, his three-year-old questions, Habakkuk declares two absolute personal convictions about God. God, I know you keep your promises and I know that you're holy. So whatever's going on and whatever this means, however many questions I have for you right now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to brace for the worst. I'll climb to the lookout tower and scan the horizon and I'll wait to see what God says and how he will ultimately answer my complaint. This is what he actually does in his deepest despair and confusion. It's, it's not arrogance. He's not sort of <laughs> sitting up in his tower with his arms crossed. No, he's genuinely shifting from complaining to waiting. He's open to new insights about God, about himself and about the circumstance. And eventually God does speak. And we see four things about God's ways. God's ways. The first is in, in chapter um, 2, verse 2 and 3, God indicates that his plan is always unfolding in time. You know, long time, short time, but it's always unfolding. So don't fret and despair, Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil people, because it only leads to evil, the psalmist says. 
Do not fret and despair. Number one, the plan's unfolding in, in time, he says to, to Habakkuk. Number two, so wait and listen, sure of my faithfulness and my character. You think you know who I am? Well, keep holding on to that and wait and listen. Number three, sin and evil are things that I can use, saith the Lord. Sin and evil are things that I can use. Number three, unfolding in its time, wait and listen. Sin and evil are things I can use. Fourthly, Habakkuk, be still before me. Remain faithful to me. So Habakkuk says in verse 20, but God is in his holy temple. Quiet, everyone. Holy silence. Listen. He trembles and he trusts. Shut up and listen. In the middle of the night at 3 a.m., Malcolm, just shut up and listen. The response of the soul is it opens Habakkuk's life and soul. And we see Habakkuk do two things. The first is we see him surrender. I'm stopped in my tracks, down on my knees as you bring judgment, as you surely must remember your mercy. God, I've heard what our ancestors said about you and it stops me in my trucks, tracks. It brings me down to my knees. God, do among us what you did among our ancestors. Work among us as you worked among them and as you bring judgment, as you surely must. Remember to be merciful. I can surrender to that. And secondly... Tremble, tremble, tremble. As he moves from puzzlement and frustration, he says, The skies are blazing with splendour, his praises sounding through the earth, his cloud brightness like dawn exploding, spreading forked lightning, shooting from his hand. What power hidden in that fist is his revelation from listening. So what? You see, I don't know about you, but for me, sorry, whoever's listening. Sorry, Millie, if you were listening to that. I don't know about you, but that's, that's cool, but it's just, it's just information. It's just information, isn't it? It's all right for Habakkuk. God's incomprehensible. He knows what he's doing. Shut up and hang on. Yeah, I get that. But you know, if that's all there is, to be honest, I remain pretty untouched. But then there's the bit at the end where the terrifying God somehow comes near to Habakkuk's heart. Do you need that? Do you need, do you need God to come near your heart? 
The final verses of this little book lead me to want to not let go. Okay, I won't let go. So if you're on page 764, can you help me? 764. I'll read verse 16 and then let's all read it to the end. I hear. I hear, says Habakkuk. I've got you, mate. I hear. And I tremble and my lips quiver. Rottenness enters into my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come, not upon us, but for the people who attack us. And together we say, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vine, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, Though the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and makes me tread upon the heights. And it's all to the leader of music. It's praise. It's a song. It's sung partly as lament and partly in joy and hope and expectation of praise. That, that deer is not the deer as you know it. That's, that's the surest footed animal on the planet. That's what his feet have become as he puts his trust in the Lord. I want to finish with an example of trembling but hanging on from an, a brilliant old uh, Bible teacher. Walter Brueggemann has been around for a long, long time. And what he's referring to here is Habakkuk's situation, but in the New Testament. The people who find themselves in his situation. Those people who Jesus would come near, lime, paralysed, blame, lame, goodness me, even dead. Listen to this. Just It's about a minute long, what Walter Brueggemann says to listen carefully we might need to turn it up Jane it's the computer slide you might not you might not don't deafen us but just if you do it's the computer slides there but the other thing to observe in um, in the stories of Jesus is that Jesus uh, deals with many smaller uh, disorientations of blind people and lame people and uh, lepers and poor people and in the case of Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, dead people. Just dead people, you know. And what you notice in those narratives is that the needy person or the family of the dead person come up and summon Jesus to come into their life or into their house. Uh, you remember the blind Bartimaeus in Luke says, Son of David, have mercy on me. So that's a, that's a very small prayer of lament. When I was in seminary, I was taught out of the, the tradition of St. Augustine that God takes all initiatives. Prevenient grace and all that stuff. 
But it's not true. If you, if you look at the way those transactions work with Jesus, the needy person must take the initiative and must summon Jesus into the transaction. So I want to suggest that psalms of disorientation are basically prayers that seek to mobilize God on the assumption that if you don't summon God, nothing will happen. Got it? If you don't summon God, nothing will happen. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy to gloss over Jesus' words. Those who seek to gain their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will gain it, even gain eternal life. You know, he's got to be joking, right? Lord, where am I seeking to gain my life? Where are you working to gain your life? Grinding, toiling, therapizing your life right now to control for success, to get a better outcome. Lord, what might it look like to lose that? to lay that down and to let whatever's happening in our lives today be a new place of Christian formation. Lord, we thank you for Barb Brand's testimony last week that was ludicrous in its simplicity but profound in its power. Simply this frustrating pattern of critical communication is getting me and us nowhere. I'll take responsibility to do things differently. But come, Jesus come. And for each of us in the middle of the night, where we're resisting and running or distorting and denying, Lord, there's no point us faking it in our pain and despair. We either look at Jesus, who has a tear in his eye, or we look elsewhere. We either declare that Jesus is God and Christ, or I declare myself to be God and Christ and get even busier than I already am. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, hear the cry of our challenged, broken, resistant, and sometimes repentant hearts, and fill us anew with your spirit to heal us and change us. In Jesus' name. Amen.